This is episode number six with Mark and Thacker. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Strings Podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hello, hello. So the Creative Strings podcast is about all things creative. And today we're throwing you a little bit of a curveball because I've got one of my mentors, somebody I respect a lot. His name is Mark Ann Thacker. He is a conductor. He's a diehard classical musician. He was somebody who influenced me a lot when I was growing up as a classical violinist. I'm really excited about having him on because he's going to talk about some really deep stuff that can help any musician, even people that aren't musicians, it's going to help you to get into some really deep stuff. So I'm excited about today. And as always, I want to give a huge thanks to our sponsors at the Electric Violin Shop. If you go to electricviolinshop.com slash creative strings, you can get a discount and let them know that I sent you. The Electric Violin Shop is where I get all my gear whether it's amps, electric violins, strings, anything related to getting the best sound that I can, keeping up with the newest technology. They have tremendous expertise, and part of the reason I love these guys is that they will get on the phone with you, and they'll help you work out whatever problem you're having. So check them out. So I want to go ahead and get right into this. It's going to be a two-part episode because we had such a great talk. We divided it into two parts. So this is going to be the first part. So hang on. here with Mark and Thacker. Mark and thank you so much for joining me in the Creative Strings podcast. It is a great pleasure. For those of you who don't know, Mark and is one of my mentors. In fact, if you don't mind me saying so, Mark and you had a huge huge impact on me as a young classical violinist. And I worked with you mostly during a summer camp where we were doing orchestra and chamber music. And later on during my college years, I corresponded with you and even read some of your books that you were working on. And we talked about the ideas. I studied college level counterpoint with you. So this is a thrill for me to get to interview you 25 years later. I want to get right into it. People can go to the show notes page at christianhouse.com. And uh, look for the Creative Strings podcast, and you're going to find all kinds of great links about Mark Hand Thacker, his conducting, the, his books he's written. But let's talk about the book that was recently released on the University of Rochester Press. It's called Looking for the Harp Quartet, an Investigation into Musical Beauty. I remember reading maybe just a little bit of this when you were starting it, I think 25 years ago. Can you talk about what it was then and what it became and why did you write this book? And I don't remember what initiated that first essay, but I was pondering the idea of what is a piece of music we talk about? Well, here's this piece. And what exactly is that? It's a hard thing to pin down. And so I wrote this little dialogue and it stood alone for a while. But some years before that, I had met and worked with a brilliant conductor who's now become really quite famous at the time. He wasn't very well known in the United States, but this was Sergio Celibidake. And he had been music director of the Berlin Philharmonic for eight years between 
two very famous conductors, uh, Furtwängler and Karajan. He was a crazy man, Celibidaka was. Well, they're probably all crazy, but um, Celibidaka was certainly crazy. He refused to make recordings, um, but he was legendary in Europe, and I got a chance to study with him in the early 80s. He did change my life, but it wasn't that I came into a whole new way of understanding things. It was, I met this guy, I heard him talk, I worked with him, and he was speaking my language. He, the things he said made sense to me in a way that other things that I'd heard had one of the reasons he was so farther along in his understanding, he understood that, okay, we've all had these magic moments at a concert where maybe it's a, a magical progression or a melody that just grabs us and gives us chills. Well, he understood that it's possible to have that kind of transcendent moment from the beginning of the first sound of a movement through to the end of the last sound. And so I spent two summers working with him in the early 80s. And then from then on, it was really that whole notion of just by absorbing sound, we can be moved, we can transcend. And so that became a focus of my own work of how does that happen? So if I can try to translate this, and what spoke to me working with you was that you weren't just talking about how to articulate the music or how to listen or how to subdivide or watch the conductor, all the things that we learn as classical musicians. But it seemed like you wanted to go to another level. You wanted to talk about how do we make the music transcendent? That's the word you just used. Is that right? It's really how do we find a deeper meaning and convey that deeper meaning with music? Yes, to a degree. But the first element that's critical is an understanding that on a basic level, well, first of all, every human being is different. We all are born in a different place, we have different parents, we have different experiences, different environment. But at essence, there's a real sameness about human beings, which is frankly necessary for there to be society because we all pull up to the red light, we understand it's a red light and we stop. Human beings respond to stimuli in the same or similar manners. Therefore, if we're making music, it's not a question of me as conductor say, you do this, you do that. It's a question of, okay, Let's all open ourselves to these sounds and let's respond to these sounds in a way that moves all of us or can move all of us. I remember talking about chamber music with you and we would rehearse and I remember you saying, let's try it this way. Now let's try it this way. And everybody in the group might have a suggestion about how they wanted to try it. And you would say, okay, so it's up to the group to try each version sort of with all of your effort. Try it as many times as you have to, to try to make it work and then observe and see, does it really work? So we would try them. And I think what you said was that we'll all know when it works. Is that something you would have said? Yeah, boy, I was smart then. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, and what works mean is what I was just talking about. Does it move us? And how it moves us is that all these diverse elements, all these different tones, uh, all these different timbres in different rhythms, they come together into one larger whole. And what allows us to transcend is this sound object coming to us as one, coming to us as one on a number of different levels, but in particular, this overarching level of the creation and the playing out of energy so that within a phrase, within whatever section of 
music. We create some energy, and to make it whole, we have to play out that energy that we created, and we will all hear it. So you're saying that within any small phrase, and also within any large phrase, and within a whole piece, you're saying that we're creating energy, or some people might say creating tension, and then we have to release exactly the same amount of tension or energy. Is that right? Absolutely. And in fact, it's hierarchical. We have a small unit, and then we have a succession of units, so there's a grouping of then those larger successions of units, and, and then larger up until the level of the whole piece. This is what I loved about working with you when I was playing Mozart string quartets or Vivaldi concertos, because you'd always talk about this from the podium or while you were coaching a quartet. You'd always ask us to stop and analyze each phrase, you know, whether it was an eight-bar phrase or whether it was just a sub-phrase within the eight-bar phrase or whether it was the movement, and you'd sort of get into the nitty-gritty of how do we measure the creation of tension and the release of tension. Can you talk about that? Well, first of all, one critical element is that the equilibrium of sound is silence. And by that, I mean that any sound must return to silence. Any sound must die. And so any sound itself to exist is a struggle against silence. So there's an energy in our consciousness of any sound. So within a phrase could start with some injection of energy and play it out. Be or we could increase the energy. But I think you can hear even there that the more energy we create in order to make it whole, the more we have to play out. And the way it sounds like when you sing those phrases, it sounds like what I notice automatically is just how you do that with volume. Okay, so we think about the composer in, in terms of classical music where you have a composer and a performer. The composer has four primary tools, and one is volume, and one is speed, and in other words, rhythmic density, tones getting closer together or farther apart. One is pitch, and one is harmony. For a performer, we really only have two and that's volume and speed or rhythmic density. So for a classical performer, we have this composition. On a local level, we're probably going to create this dynamic structure in the sense of energy. We're going to create it using volume and using speed going forward or pulling back. That's a, a much more powerful creator of energy. So that happens more on a global scale. But those are our two tools. So volume and speed? R rhythmic density. Rhythmic so density. as we get fast, as we go forward, the tones get closer together. They get more and more dense, creating more and more energy. And just a pum 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 pa 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 creates more energy. Pa 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 decreasing the rhythmic density tends to play out energy. Oh, so as a performer, these are the things that we have a little bit of leeway to decide, to use a little more of a retardando or a little more of a cello rondo. Is that, is that what you're saying? Well, we have to do. That's our obligation. Because our obligation ultimately is to put the sounds forth in a way that can move us, can move the players, can move anyone listening. And in order to do that, those, those tones have to come to us as whole, and they have to come to us as whole on the basis of having created energy and playing it out. Therefore, if the music creates a certain amount of energy, well, say even not whether or not we slow down, but how much we slow down. So let's say the composer tells us, uh, retard. How much retard? How much retard is how much energy did we create? So then we have to play it out.
So this changed everything for me once I worked with you because, of course, I'd worked with some great coaches and some great teachers, and, and it's not to diminish the things that I learned from them, but it's kind of, we take for granted, I think, as performers, as instrumentalists, where we learn from in a way. I've learned so much from conductors like yourself and uh, another conductor who taught me at Ohio State, Marshall Haddock. And it's so amazing to me that conductors can be the conduit for this great learning. I mean, it, it sounds stupid maybe for me to say that because you think, well, that's the job of the conductor is to teach all these people in an orchestra. But in a way, as an orchestral musician, I think you go into it and you don't necessarily expect that the conductor is actually going to teach you all that much. You know, I don't know. Maybe that's part of the confidence that you're supposed to have when you go and face the conductor in an orchestra. You're supposed to know your stuff, right? Well, but it, Chris, you have to understand that in order to mount that podium, you have to commune with God. So we <laughs> we have all the answers. <laughs> in order to create, as you've said, this sort of indivisible moment of consciousness, right? You talked yeah. about this, and maybe you can talk about that more in a little while, but I want to bring it down to a practical thing just for a second. What is it that an instrumentalist or a string quartet or somebody in a jazz band even on a day-to-day -day level can do to get closer to bringing meaning into their music in this way, in this philosophical way that you're talking about? Sure. But first, the issue of meaning, I think I know what you mean by it, but it's a little bit deceiving word because meaning suggests that the art is representing something. In fact, that's the meaning of the word meaning, that this tone means X, and it's really goes beyond meaning. It's just about, does this move me? Am I changed? Is this some sort of profound experience? So, uh, understanding that. Thank you for clarifying that. In other words, you're saying meaning could be taken to mean something like literary or, you know. And, and there are people who do, yes, you know, Beethoven Pastoral Symphony means, well, they show up and they go on a picnic and there's a storm and dancing and um, yeah. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. So, so you're talking more about just moving people, compelling people. With being the, being with moved, them. being touched. Gotcha. You know, so how do we do it? Well, at essence, it's really simple. It's open your ears to all the sounds and bring them forth in a way that moves you. Mm. It's, it's that simple and that hard at the same time. So how does somebody take that into the practice room today? Well, there are a couple issues. So if you're practicing and you're just working on your intonation, your scales, you know, there are specific things that you're thinking about. So you're not playing shradiac exercises to be moved. But if you're in a rehearsal room with a quartet, so now we have this performance of, for example, the harp quartet. All right, what are we rehearsing? Well, we want it to be in tune. I think everyone's had that experience of you have a chord and it's not quite in tune. And then somehow that just... <laughs> It, it comes together and it just sucks you in and it's beautiful. And the same thing happens in terms of balance, that if you have these four or six or eight or however many tones sounding simultaneously, that if you can structure them in a way that they all combine into one larger whole, it just sucks you in in the same way as a, a beautiful in tune chord does. Not only in terms of a simultaneity, but in terms of a succession of tones. How can we play these tones so that they all come together? But the first requirement is that we're open to it, that we're fully open, we're fully listening. A lot of times, for instance, with conducting students, I ask people to close their eyes. I just now got an email from a conducting student who said, you know, my professor tells me that I have to just worry about what's in the score, but I'm very confused because I listened to this recording by this conductor, this one, and I like this one better than that. And I think there's something about intuition and how do I balance that against the academic? And I'm saying, I'm about to write to her and say, yes, you're absolutely right. <laughs> it's all about your intuition and just be open to the sounds and respond, which is not to say that we ignore what the composer 
composer gave us because the composer gave us the path. That's amazing because I was watching the draft of your trailer video for for your workshop, your conducting workshop that you give at Peabody. And is that in the summer? I do two of them. I do a five-day one in December and an 11-day one in June. Who's eligible to attend those? Conductors. Anybody that wants to learn about conducting can come. Well, we only take 10. So oh, they have to apply. You have to apply. We take 10 fellows who conduct the ensembles. And then I take others who are observing and participating in all the activities. We do a lot of things. We do a lot of musical issues. We do a lot of physical conducting, for lack of a better word, technique issues. But those folks don't conduct the orchestra. Only 10 conduct the ensembles. And we'll share that in the show notes and people can find it at thebco.org slash conducting. In conjunction with the Baltimore Chamber Orchestra, these two conducting workshops you do a year, I was watching the trailer video and someone made a comment. You might remember this. They said something to the effect that, you know, when you're conducting music, it's not about bringing your vision into it. It's not about interpreting. It was kind of what I read into it. It was like, there's a right way and you have to be open to hearing that and don't bring too much of yourself into it. So I don't understand the difference there. That was a misguided comment because he just took things a little bit too far. So explain to me then, how do you feel about that? Because you just said that it's great to follow your intuition. That if you're open to the beauty or to being touched by the music, or if you're open to the energy in the music, to the sounds, to what happens in the moment, that your intuition is going to show you the way in a way, right? Are you saying that's true? So there could be two different performances of the same piece. They're very different, but are both equally compelling. Yeah. In fact, you give a performance and I give a performance and they're going to be different. And frankly, you give a performance at four o'clock and you give another performance at eight o'clock of the same work and they're going to be different. And they could both be, as you say, beautifully compelling. Uh, these two optimally beautiful performances, and they may well differ. One will be a little faster, one will be a little louder, one will be a little greater inflection one will have a little darker sound color. But one thing, in order for them to be optimal, there are certain things that have to obtain across both of them. One of those things is they have to be in tune. And one of those things is there has to be good ensemble, assuming we're multiple performance here. Let's define that. Let's define ensemble just for different listeners. I think what you mean by that is that people are playing together. And by playing together, that means starting notes together, ending notes together, playing with matched articulations. Would that be fair? Exactly. Yes. Perfect. So intonation, ensemble. What else is on our checklist? The overriding consideration is this issue of dynamic structure, structure of energy, that a given phrase, this one little thing that I'm singing, I'll say, bam, bam. Pom, 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 pom. Composer gives us that. So then I need to perform that in such a way. Pom, 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 pom. I forget the tune I made. Pom, pom, So now I could do a little softer. Pom, 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 but a little faster. But what I couldn't do is. Bom, 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 bom. Why not? Because there's energy left over. That's like the equivalent of a fragment, right? Exactly. 
and what we're after is whole. So if I like the sentence analogy would be a run-on sentence or a fragment of a sentence. Do you agree with that? Could you use those? Sure, absolutely. So it's kind of like a, a complete sentence is a complete sentence. It's not a fragment and it's not a run-on. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and yeah. But it's not just the composition of the sentence. It's actually the performance of the sentence. It's actually the delivery, the execution of that uh, by the performer that, that's going to define whether it works as a complete sentence or as a complete statement for the listener versus leaving you hanging like like that one did or just burying you in the ground and, and overdoing it right so one yeah, of those absolutely. one of those situations you're you're not releasing enough energy that, well no, no in fact it pom 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 i i made some energy pom 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 but there's a lot hanging over right you didn't release enough energy oh but actually but uh, so i'm i'm mixing apples and oranges here because what i'm talking about is the composer gave us uh, this little three note and he didn't he or she didn't allow us oh to, sorry sorry yes to, but what you were right what what i did before was i played it in such a way that there was energy hanging over so it made it uh, even though it's the same however seven eight nine ten notes whatever it was i made it into something incomplete i made it into a fragment by creating energy that couldn't be played out within it i want to see if i can try to duplicate this and i, and I think the first phrase you sang was something like this da, 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 da. I think that's the first phrase that, that you sing. I'm going to assume it was. So I want to see if I can sing it wrong in a few different ways. We can use this as an example to, to really let people hear about your theory and about how to practice. So uh, here we go. Da, 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 da. So what was wrong about that? Was, it, was that wrong? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I think it was wrong. It felt like it was wrong. It felt like I slowed it way down, right? Or something. I don't know. Well, there, you had skips and jumps in there rhythmically. But, <laughs> right, right. And, I, but I, you I, also gave it a lot of energy at the end, which meant that at the very end, there was still energy hanging over. Okay, got it. It didn't release all the energy, right? Is that It didn't let all right, the energy play out. Right, because okay. you kept giving new bumps of energy on the way down. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so let me try it again. Okay, so let's see if I can make it wrong or, or right. Da, 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 da. Da, 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 da. So was was that right or was that wrong or? Uh, well, what do you think? I, I don't. It didn't feel good to me. No, uh, because kind of rushed to you know. No, because yeah, because you in pushing in the terms I would use in increasing the rhythmic density, right? You're creating tension, and that's really even more powerful than increasing the volume. So by the time you got to the end, pom 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 pom, that there's. A lot of energy left over. Okay, so let me try one more. Okay. Do, 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 do. I went the other way that time, right? Right. You could do it even more pronounced by something like this. Bom, 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 bom. <laughs> now we're at the opera. I love it. <laughs> By the way, I got a D in chorus at Juilliard. I, I earned every bit of that D. But isn't this? But isn't this telling? Because isn't this a stereotypical problem with operatic technique? Right, that each note is emphasized too much. Is that fair to say? Like people overdo the emphasis of every note, which doesn't allow the longer arch of the phrase to play out. Am I saying I, that correctly? I think so. And I have to say that I'm phenomenally impressed with singers, especially I've conducted some opera, and 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 these people show up and they sing and they act and they move around the stage and they have costumes and talk about multitasking. But in any case, where 
I think a common mistake or failing of, of singers can be that they can tend to, I've got to be careful, I don't want to offend anyone because really some great musicians who are singers, but I think it's easy to be in love with the beauty of your voice and then lose track of the whole, a uh, larger whole, larger phrase, succession of tones. But this could be any instrumentalist. I mean, it's a cellist or a violinist or a, a flutist or anybody that's kind of a soloist, right? I mean, this is, a, this is almost a pitfall of soloists, if you will. But violin and pianists sometimes can get mesmerized by their own phenomenal technique too for example well I was going to say and I think even if it's not that people just get caught up in the beauty of a single note or a single moment and they don't allow the longer phrase to play out as you might say even if you're not egotistical it's just if you're not thinking about making a long line if you're not thinking about the arch of five minutes and making as you might say this indivisible you know one moment over that five minutes I think it's easy to miss that and that was one of the things that I love from you talking about working in a string quartet it's like how do we get from point A to point B absolutely exactly Okay, so I want to go back to this checklist point, because when you started talking about intonation and ensemble, I'd like for you to fill in the rest of that, because it starts to sound like fundamentals to me. We hear that all the time. It's all fundamentals, right? It's Everything's about fundamentals. But the difference about this is that you're starting with, I mean, to my mind, the difference is you're starting with this premise that we're trying to touch people. We're trying to listen for this profound, sublime, use the word sublime if, if I remember correctly, this sublime beauty in music. And so that's your goal, but the fundamentals are part of what's going to make that happen. Is that accurate? Yes, but it's all of a piece. In other words, it's all about the sound object coming to us as one. The fundamentals being you got to play in tune. Well, why do you have to play in tune? Because everything needs to be within one unified system of intonation. And it's probably more accurate to say not that you have to play in tune, but that you have to not play out of tune because there's a range of intonation that we can accept. And similarly with <clears throat> this issue of ensemble or collective sense of rhythm, we all need to be dealing with the same metric system with one single one. So if you have an ensemble and the entrances are not together, then there's no longer one. It's, we have different metric systems. We have different systems of intonation. So yeah, you got to play in tune, you have to play in rhythm so that we can bring a level of oneness in terms of those areas. And ultimately so that we can get to this even higher level of oneness. Oh, wow. I love this idea of oneness. So intonation, it's not just intonation for intonation's sake, it's intonation for oneness sake and oneness on the surface is all about achieving deeper oneness what is that deeper oneness that's the thing that we don't know there are no words but <laughs> no no but really so because you go and you listen to sounds and it moves you actually i think that there are two functions of art and i think they're both about self-identity so one function of art is, is representational. So we go to the museum and we see a soup can. And that painting of the soup can, it makes us think. It makes us think about our world and all, all kinds of things. It, it brings us closer into the world. And that's a good thing. It further defines us by defining for us our environment more deeply. Or we go to the opera and we hear um, Cho Cho-san and, and she's giving up her little son and Madame Butterfly. She gives up her son and it tears us up. But it makes us really vivid, this experience of life 
life and it touches us and we leave that theater or we finish a novel and we connect to these relationships that are going on and it makes the world around us really vivid. It brings us out and in doing that, it gives us a sense of ourselves. But music can do something else. The visual art can do something else too. Music and visual art. That we can absorb the sound. It washes over us. We take it in. We open ourselves to it. We lose ourselves in the sound. And that's a pretty common expression, what is lose yourself in. And you are, in fact, losing yourself in the sound. So that ordinary experience involves a duality between me, the experiencer, and all the stuff that's out there that's not me, whether it's this computer or the lamp or uh, sunlight or Barack Obama or detente or whatever it might be, all these things that are different from me. But if I'm there with a great painting and I just allow myself to absorb those images and it, and it all comes together, or with sounds, if those sounds allow me to just disappear into those sounds, what's disappearing is the duality between me and the sounds. So in a very real sense, I become the sounds, not in reality, but in terms of my consciousness of the sounds, I have become the sounds. And in becoming the sounds, what's left? Well, in that experience, there's no me. And there's no sounds out there. There's no thing out there. It's just my consciousness. And I think it's not a stretch to say that's the essence of my soul. So in these kinds of artistic experiences, well, we hear that said a lot too. You know, people say, oh, music can help you touch your soul. Well, yes, it can. Mm -hmm. In a very real way, this transcendence can help us experience the very essence of our being. And then we leave the concert hall or we leave that museum and we're changed and we're better. That's awesome. I love that. So if I can paraphrase some of the aspects of what you were talking about, it sounds like you're saying that whether it's a piece of music or whether it's a painting, that you can experience that on the level of the story that's being told, the symbols that are in the story, the single dramas and the conflicts and resolutions that unfold within a drama, within a story. But you're also saying that you can experience it in a completely different way, almost without any realization of those specific symbols or conflicts. And you talked about that. I remember reading about it in your book 20 years ago when you said that you should stand in front of a painting and not analyze the painting, not necessarily notice that there's a jar or notice that there's a, an apple in a bowl, but just let the pure colors and shapes as you said, wash over you and let yourself absorb it, which I think is hard to do, actually, by the way. So you're saying that's this higher level where you can experience this loss of self, loss of time, you know, and experience an indivisible moment of consciousness. It follows from that that it's the job of the conductor and the performers to facilitate that experience for the listener. Is that right? Yeah, I feel like we're gurus. I mean, we're spiritual guides. We put these sounds forth that a listener can ride. I think it's like meditation. I think it's ultimately the same experience. I think that a world-class tennis player, when at the absolute height of competition, you know, they say, be the ball. They are the ball. That's it. And of course, I have, I'm lucky to get the damn ball over the net. But, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think it's the same. Well, basketball, you know, I remember Michael Jordan. There was a finals. Uh, I forget what year it was, but there was some, some final series with Chicago Bulls and he couldn't miss. And I remember he hit a three and he's coming back down the court and he looks at the announcers and he just kind of shrugs. It's like, I can't miss. And he said he's in the zone. That's the expression. He's in the zone. You just ride that and you're in the zone.
So, but the connection between fundamentals and the zone, going back to this, because I love how you have this premise and this thing that we're seeking, this goal that we all agree upon in the orchestra or in the jazz band or in the ensemble or between the performers and the coach and or the conductor in your case, you know, that our goal is to facilitate this moment of oneness for the audience, for the listeners, and also in the process, I assume, ourselves. But you're saying that the way to do that is to have this oneness in terms of intonation in terms of collective rhythm. What else? What are the other things that I should be thinking about when I'm practicing, when I'm performing a piece of music as a soloist or in an ensemble? What are those things, those fundamentals, if I can use that word, you may want to correct me and that's fine if you want to correct me, but what are the other things? You're right. It's fundamental elements of the totality of the sound. So there's balance, there's timbre, but that's, timbre is a little different because you can have the same succession of tones and it can move you fully with different timbres. Now, sometimes you can use timbre in a very subtle way to change timbre and amplify, say, a release of tension. But it's very subtle. So I I wouldn't say that's really one of what you're talking about, the fundamentals. What are the fundamentals? Rhythm, pitch, balance, phrasing inflections, and the global structure. Okay, so talk about balance a little bit. What do you mean when you say balance? So let's say you have a flute and an oboe playing in unison. So let's just say, talk about unison, two simultaneous tones. What happens a lot is we hear a flute and an oboe playing together, but ideally we'll hear some combination of the two. So a new sound, mm. a, a, a flobo. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and how do we get the flobo? Well, when we're blending simultaneous tones, I love this analogy that I'm sure you've blended paint. Mm. How do you blend paint? Mm. Well, you don't start with the dark paint and blend the light one in. You start with the white, right? You start with the light paint. You want to get pink, you start with the white, and you gradually add the stronger color, gradually add the red until it gets to pink. Mm. And it's the same way with balancing tones, that you start with the flattest, the least intense tone, and you add the most intense tone, the Mm. more intense tone, until some combination emerges. So if you have that flute and oboe, you start with the flute and then allow the oboe to just fit their sound into the flute until something, some new sound emerges. In practical terms, I think in that situation, the oboe would tend to be too loud Mm. because they would tend to think, okay, well, I have to play as loud. But actually, in order to make that new sound, the oboe has to physically be softer than the flute because the oboe has a more intense sound than the flute so it's like the red to the the oboe is the red and the flute is the white paint yeah so if you have a clarinet which is a relatively less intense quality sound and you're blending that with an oboe or a bassoon but then there are different elements of intensity so if you consider balance of different pitches if we play two pitches simultaneously and we play them at the same decibel level the lower one will dominate So I was in a physics of music class in college when I I got my degree. And I know it's very rude and cynical, but I have been known to say it was this was the only thing I ever learned in school. (laughs) The professor put on, he had two sound generating just machines. And he had the two tones, uh, say, an octave apart. And he turned the upper one on, and then he turned the lower one on, very soft. And he started turning it up louder and louder and louder and louder. And he said... Okay, folks, I want you to raise your hands when you no longer hear the upper tone. So he got louder and louder, and at a certain point, it obliterated the upper tone. Then he said, okay, now we're going to do the reverse. And he put the lower tone on, and he put it pretty soft. And then he started turning 
up the volume on the upper one. And he said, okay, now I want you to raise your hand when you no longer hear the lower tone. He's turning the upper one higher and higher and higher, louder, 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 louder. You could never not hear the lower tone. So for all these years, I've remembered something, I think that you or someone told me wrong then, because I thought you were always supposed to, whenever doubling in the octave, I thought that the upper octave was always supposed to play a little bit quieter to match the lower octave, but now I think I've got it wrong. Do I have it wrong? You do and you don't. That is what everyone says. I don't think I said it then. I was certainly taught that, the same thing you were, that's what everyone says. But here's the issue. When people say play the upper one softer than the lower one, their goal is right. They're trying to make a unity out of the two. But they make the unity by obliterating the upper one. Mm. My counterpoint book, I actually, I, I remember this because I wanted to put this example in there and the editor wouldn't let me. Um, and the example was, if you have a man and a dog and the two could make a unity, the two of them, because the man could help shelter and feed the dog and the dog could help the man go out and hunt and protect his family. And, and so the two of them made this larger whole. So they made a unity, the two. Or they could make a unity by the man eating the dog. And when you're playing the upper octave softer than the lower one, you're eating that upper tone. So if you want to make a unity out of the two so that they both function, you actually have to play the lower octave softer. Wow. I had it wrong all these years. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to apologize to everybody. I'm not blaming you for that because I don't know that I heard that from you. But I, I learned it from people. It was, you know... But I kind of like it, but I think it makes it easier to play in tune. If Wait, some yeah, sure. Because <laughs> you're obliterating one of the sounds, right? Yeah, okay. Okay, so that's balance. So balance is really paying careful attention to the levels of the different instruments. And obviously, I mean, balance comes into play when you're talking about the melody versus the accompaniment or the bass function versus the inner voices versus the melody and the counter melodies, right? That's a huge, I'm assuming, I mean, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, well, absolutely. So assuming there's a melody and accompaniment, yeah, the melody takes priority wherever it is. So it could be the melody is in, a, is in the bass line. Uh, sure, that takes priority. And then the accompaniment is then below that in, in terms of priority. You know, this is funny because in the jazz bands, you know, I know jazz isn't where you focus a lot of your effort, but for me, one of my pet peeves is when there's a bass solo and the rest of the band keeps playing loudly. And so I'm always like, if I'm accompanying the bass solo, I'm like, I'm going to triple P, P and SMO, right? But now having heard what you said about the strength of lower tones, it makes me question that. So how do I... The bass, especially pizzicato, it's a soft instrument. But if you have a bass and a cello, playing arco, well, I mean, this is certainly true in jazz or whatever instrument, bass and piano or whatever, but in, say, a lot of classical era compositions, Mozart, Haydn, where the bass and the cello are just doubled in octaves, a lot of times, if those two sections are playing the same volume, the cello's gone. Wow. And obviously, when you think about the composition of an orchestra, there's one bass and seven violins or, you know, nine violins or whatever, so that does 
support what you said earlier about the lower tones having you know more strength okay so balance is big and we talked about collective ensemble rhythmic playing collectively rhythmically together an ensemble and playing in tune or not playing out of tune and then you talked about timbre being another thing is there anything else no you had mentioned articulations yeah you want to match articulations but that's about that's about matching because frankly there are a lot of people who take a lot of time to say well short notes long notes long notes short notes and it doesn't really matter it's you know, <laughs> no is, is the car you know red or is it green it could be a great car either way that's not going to change it. But what we didn't talk about was tempo. Oh. And tempo is a condition under which we can absorb the tones as a whole. Mm. I'll say that there's not a right tempo, but there are wrong tempos. Mm. There are tempos that are too fast and tempos that are too slow. An effective tempo is one in which we can hear all the tones. We can allow every tone to register with us and to work on us fully. And one in which we can maintain all the tones in the same act of consciousness. So for example, let me just say what a, what a wrong tempo would be. A too fast tempo would be one in which the tones blur together, in which each tone doesn't strike us, hit us, register with us fully. And a tone that's uh, a tempo that's too slow is one in which by the time we get to point C, we've lost point A. You can't absorb the arc, the longer arc, uh, when it's too slow. Is that what you mean? Yeah, you have to keep everything in the same act of consciousness because ideally for this maximal experience to take place, what happened in bar one has to have significance in bar two. And what happens in bar one and two have to have significance in bar three and what happens in bar one two and three together have to have significance by the time you get to bar 300 but in order to do that you have to keep them and so the beauty of that and i have to say this is just something that's made sense to me in the last oh couple of years you know because tempos is something that everyone struggles with mm -hmm. um, but the beauty is really that's all you have to worry about you don't have to worry about a metro mark you don't have to worry about what some recording did you don't have to worry about this tempo marking or this similar tune in a an opera or none of that just these two simple things can i hear every tone can every tone fully work on me fully move me and can i maintain all the tones if you can do that you have a good tempo it's awesome it takes me back 25 years to when i was sitting eagerly in an orchestra listening to you talking to us and just drinking in everything you had to say and just feeling so inspired by it all and that it was just helping me to take my musicianship to what i would define as a as a meaningful place i just feel like i need to acknowledge and thank you for that because it's so important to have mentors for musicians that do that the way that you do yeah but chris let me say that whatever it was 25 years ago but i still remember because you stood out no no and and mostly in a good way no really you stood out in terms of what you heard i worked with two young people who really stood out, you, and, and there's another guy who's now a concertmaster in Sarasota, but it was really clear that you could hear everything that was going on around you, and that was unusual. So if you valued that relationship from your end, I valued it at least as much from my end. Well, thank you. And there it is. That concludes part one, and we're going to be coming back with more of this conversation with Mark Ann Thacker, part two, soon. Make sure to check out the show notes and leave comments at christianhouse.com. Make sure to check out Mark Ann's stuff. You can go to Mark Ann 
thacker.com. Learn more about his work with the Baltimore Chamber Orchestra, the bco.org, and the work he does at Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore. I want to thank one more time our sponsors at the Electric Violin Shop for enabling us to really invest in the production qualities of this show. It really makes a huge difference. And thank you for checking it out. And please do like it, share it with your friends, and we will see you next time.